This morning we had a centurion in our scripture reading from the Gospels. I might point that that way, it might make more sense. Uh, And so as a result, each and every one of you this morning have thought about the Roman Empire. Is that right? There's been a thing going around the internet this week and last week, I believe, about where women ask the men in their lives how often they think about the Roman Empire. So it started with someone in Sweden saying to her husband, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And he said, oh, almost every day. And it became a thing that spread across the internet where women would come to their husbands and ask, or their brothers or their fathers, whoever, how often do you ask about the Roman Empire? Well, I didn't wait for Talia to ask me. I just volunteered and said to her, actually, you know what? I think about the Roman Empire a lot. I'm probably among the 4% of people who think about the Roman Empire every single day. And you should be too. I'll come to that in a moment. They, they use this uh, internet to talk about the difference between men and women. And so the percentage of men who think about the Roman Empire every day or every couple of days or every week is enormously different to the number of women who think about the Roman Empire every day and every week and every year. In fact, they estimate that nearly 50% of women don't think about the Roman Empire at all. Can you believe that? 50% of women aren't thinking about the Roman Empire ever. It's unbelievable. Hands up, ladies in the room, who could say that they're among that 50%. Oh, gee, 100% in this room. <laughs> there was a joke that was told at one of my cousin's weddings uh, that the difference between men and women is that women think about little things and men think about big things. So women think about the little things like what are we going to eat, what are we going to wear, what color should the carpet be, who's going to vacuum the things, what's going to happen with the children, who's getting them to sport. And men think about the big things like should the United Nations intervene in Kosovo? And who should be the coach of that football team? And who should fix that big problem down the road? And who's to blame when something goes wrong in politics? That's the difference between men and women. Clearly, the women are thinking about practical and necessary things, and the men are just thinking about stuff that's nothing to do with them whatsoever. They're just off with the fairies and thinking about things that are well beyond their pay grade. The reality is, though, that we should all be thinking about the Roman Roman Empire as Christians, a fair bit, because the Roman Empire is the background to the stories of Jesus. And so if you're reading the gospel stories, if you're reading regularly in the New Testament, you should be bumping into the Roman Empire and thinking about them a fair bit. There are lots of military metaphors in the New Testament, and the military metaphors we read when we meet Jesus meets a centurion or different people meet the Roman government, or Paul is locked in prison. He's interacting with the Roman Empire. And the military metaphors that we meet in the New Testament are based on the Roman Empire. Because the Romans had conquered, well, the world as far as they knew. They'd conquered every civilized nation they could encounter. They'd gotten to Germans, the Germany, and found the Germans were a bunch of savages, so they didn't bother going any further. They did the same in Scotland, by the way, and they didn't even try to get to Ireland. They got to the end of civilization and went, well, there's no one here worth conquering. We'll just stop. They had beaten everybody that there was to beat. And so when we meet military metaphors in the New Testament, 
we're meeting Roman metaphors. And so this morning our scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul writes one of his most famous passages. It's a passage he's written while in prison. And he'll talk about that in the passage. And while in prison, he would have seen Roman soldiers coming and going, and he would have gotten to know them and their equipment. And so he uses this as an inspiration for us to talk about how we should live our lives. Let's read it this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 20. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This passage about the armor of God is perhaps one of the most famous passages in Scripture and one of the most uh, popular passages of Scripture, but sometimes we skip over the details. And people talk, talk about it, but they don't really understand what they're saying. The full armor of God. So this morning I want to look at the elements of what a Roman soldier of the first century would have worn that Paul is pointing to when he talks about this and what that can teach us. Uh, for those who are uh, interested, my, my, my postgraduate degree is in history. I have a master's degree in history, and I love this stuff. So if we go long this morning, give me the carry-on sign, all right? because I could talk about these things for hours. For those who are interested, I'm talking about the Roman Empire post the reforms of Marius, so I won't be going into all that stuff, okay? I'm sure all of you are fascinated to learn that. All right, very good. But in the first century, the Roman army that's conquered the world looks like this, more or less. This is a picture of what the Roman soldier would have worn in the first century. And Paul starts by saying, Stand firm then with the belt of truth, buckled round your waist. He starts with a belt of truth. And in this picture, we can't see the belt of truth because it's under everything else. The first thing the Roman would have done, Roman soldier would have done, was tie his toga up around him because he still would have worn those loose sort of senatorial robes. It would have been his natural garb, but he would have girded it up and tied it around him and fastened it in place with a belt. A good, strong belt that we can't see because it's underneath everything else and everything rested on that belt. Even today, if you're carrying a heavy backpack, you don't want to carry it with your shoulders. You want to have it around your waist. You want to have the, the belt around you so you can carry a heavy backpack. The Roman's carrying all his equipment. It's all resting on his belt. 
And Paul takes that metaphor and talks about the belt of truth. What is it at the heart of your person? What is it that you believe most fundamentally about God? Because that is what everything else will be built upon. What is the essential truth that you hold about God? Because if it's weak, if it's ineffective, if it's wrong, the rest of the armor will fall off. He goes on and he says, and then put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is this armor sort of from the waist up that covers the shoulders and down a little bit onto the arms, front and back. It is the next thing that the Roman soldier would put on to protect their heart, to protect their vital organs. It is the toughest armored bit that he's carrying is to protect his heart and his lungs and his guts. And Paul talks about the importance here of protecting what is most important. Sometimes we leave our heart exposed. Sometimes we let our emotions run wild. But here Jesus, Paul is saying, put on a breastplate of righteousness to protect your heart. Live in a good way. Live in the right way. Guard your heart. Keep it safe. Keep it strong. Regulate your internal life. That is what the enemy is trying to get to. The enemy is trying to destroy your heart. Guard it. Keep it safe. Put on that that breastplate of righteousness, of right action, of right behavior, of purity. Guard your heart. He talks about with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The Roman soldiers were famous for marching at least 20 miles a day. And so a Roman legion could turn up in your backyard before you'd even started to get yourself organized. And that's more or less how they conquered the world, was by getting there first with the most. And so the Roman soldier's boots, his sandals, were deliberately designed that he could move a long distance steadily through the day and get to his destination and carry everything he needed for campaign on his back. And so Paul uses that and says, guys, we've got to be ready to go. We've got to be ready to share the good news. Have to be available at a moment's notice to get up and go. If somebody calls you and says, I need to know about the good news. I need to know how I can be saved. Are you ready to go? In the church where I grew up, uh, we didn't drink alcohol or use drugs or do any of those things. And the main reason was so we would be ready to share the good news at a moment's notice. So if the phone call comes at 10 o'clock at night and you need to go and help somebody, can you jump in your car and go? Or are you in an unsafe way? And that's one of the really good reasons to give up on alcohol or to give up on illegal drugs, the things that meddle with our brain. They don't make us able to go, to respond as we need to. Some people are addicted to their work. If you got a phone call and said you need to come and tell someone about Jesus, could you say to them, actually, no, I'm busy at work and I can't come? We need to be able to have the priority. The priority is at a moment's notice, I can go. And when you get there, you might say, well, what am I going to say? Well, if you've been part of this church for any length of time at all, you know what you say. 
you share a simple message from Mark 1.15. Let's read together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We have spent the last three and a half years here learning this essential message so that when the phone call comes and they say somebody's had a car accident and they're bleeding out on the side of the road and they need to accept Jesus here and now, you can say, I'll be there in 10 seconds and I'll tell them what they need to know. They need to know that God's kingdom is within their grasp and all they need to do is repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. And that's life. That's life eternal. Be ready with the shields, the shoes of the gospel of peace. He says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith extinguished the fire, attacks the enemy. The enemy is shooting at us, Paul's saying. And we need to have a shield to defend ourselves. And the Romans have these great shields. The curved shield is almost as tall as a man. And the idea is that this shield will keep him safe as the enemy attack him and fire things at him and throw sticks or arrows or javelins or whatever. But the shield doesn't just protect the man himself. It protects the man next to him and the man next to him and the man next to him and all the ranks back. And so the Romans, when they were attacking a solid enemy fortification, would line up their shields, as the picture shows, in what's called a turtle formation, a testudo. And they would advance like this. And the enemy could throw all the sticks and stones and arrows and everything they wanted at them, but they had a solid wall of shields. Brothers and sisters, your faith does not just protect you, it protects me. And it protects the person in the row next to you. And it protects the children. And it protects the old folks. It protects everybody who's part of our congregation. When we exercise our faith, we can do great things together. And we're an encouragement to each other. What's the simplest way you can exercise your faith? Is somehow skipping through all the slides? No. No. <laughs> Karen denies all responsibility. It wasn't me either. The computer does not like us this morning. The devil is having a go at us. Eh? He's firing his flings and arrows via the PowerPoint slides. What's the best way and easiest way you can exercise your faith? Come to church on a Sunday. Come to church on a Sunday. It will encourage the preacher. It will encourage the song leader. It will encourage the folks around you to say, hey, I'm not in this alone. We are in this together. How's it going? Any chance up there? I'll keep going and we'll catch up. When the Romans needed to attack enemy fortifications, they would lock their shields together and they would advance and they would not stop until the enemy broke and fled. We're called to do the same. Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation Paul is saying you've got to be saved in your head. You've got to have good ideas up here. We're not just carrying around a couple of kilograms of mush. This is a muscle. It's got to be working. It's got to be trained. It's got to be giving life-giving thoughts. And if you're not saved in your thoughts, you'll get scared and you'll run. You've got to have a helmet of salvation to protect your thoughts, to protect your mind. We eat and watch so much garbage on television and the internet and then we wonder why there's so much depression, why there's so much anxiety, and why there's so much suicide. 
We need to guard our thoughts. We need to guard our imagination and keep them focused on the things that God wants us to have. Get your mind in order. Use your brain. Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of a sword, a sword of the Spirit. Perhaps you think of Conan the Barbarian and his giant two-handed claymore lifted above his head. Or perhaps you think of Aragorn leaping into battle or Boromir or any of the other great heroes. Dear friends, the sword of the Spirit, the sword that Rome, that Paul would have seen on a Roman soldier is called a gladius. And it's about that long, from hilt to point, about 16 inches in the old pork about 45 centimetres. A gladius was a short and double-edged sword, not a broadsword for random swinging, but a precision weapon for spotting the weakness in the enemy and poking him right where it hurts, not for banging him over the head. Many people grab the Bible and they grab the Word of God and they go and bash people around the head and neck. That's not what this book is for and that's not how God designed his Word to work. The word of God is a alive and active, Hebrew says, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the writer to the Hebrew says that the word of God is a double-edged sword that pokes just in the right spot and does exactly what it needs to do. So if you're bashing people around the head with your Bible, please stop. You're doing it wrong. The word of God is like the Roman soldier, a gladius, a little sword. As we advance with our faith together and we spot the weakness in the enemy, it's just a matter of jab and pull back, jab and pull back, jab and pull back. And as the Roman soldiers advance with their shields locked together and their little swords poking out and doing the damage, they beat the whole world. They beat Hannibal and all the elephants he could bring. They beat all the great kings of Sparta and Athens and all the great empires of Persia and they even beat the Germans, the hairy barbarians in the north because they were busy swinging swords around their head and running into the battle in the nude. The Romans came with their shields and their swords and they conquered and Paul calls us to do the same as well with a short and double-edged sword, listening for the word of God, listening for the wisdom of the Spirit to know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. Yes? What's missing? What's missing from Paul's passage as we look at our picture of the Roman soldier? What does he not mention? Anyone? The spear. That's right. The spear, or actually it's a javelin. Uh, Just to be technical here, a spear is a good length of wood with a pointy bit at the end that you use to poke someone with. A javelin is a lighter bit of spear with a bit of pokey thing at the end that you throw at someone. So a spear is for stabbing, a spear, a javelin is for throwing. And so a a Roman soldier would come with a javelin or a pilum, uh, usually two of them, and as the enemy approached, Whereas he was about to attack the enemy, he would hurl them into the enemy ranks. The, the, the javelins are very cleverly designed, the Roman pilums, with a thin metal bit at the end. So that once you throw it and it hits the enemy, it bends. 
which means he can't pull it out and throw it back. Yes? It's a one-way weapon. After the battle's over, you can gather up all the javelins and hit them with a hammer and make them nice and use them again. But that's a one-way weapon. You hurl it, he can't throw it back. It would stick into their armor or stick into their shields and bend and weigh it down and disrupt the enemy that as they then advance with their swords, they could take the ground. Here's another picture of a bunch of Romans hurling their spears. Either the enemy is attacking them and they've taken the opportunity to charge them or they're about to go toe in with the enemy. They throw their javelins at the last minute. Before the swords are thrown, you throw your javelin. Now, Paul doesn't describe a weapon, but he does start immediately talking about praying. Having described all the equipment and accoutrement of the Roman army, he doesn't mention the javelin, but he says, and pray. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so I will fearlessly make known the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Prayer, prayer is a vital part of the equipment of a, Roman, of, a, of a Christian soldier. And the nearest thing to a prayer in the Roman soldier was the javelin. But a javelin's only good to out about 20, 30 metres. It's only good for hitting the thing directly in front of you. And Paul knows that prayer is much more powerful than a javelin. A prayer uttered here in Australia can make a difference on the far ends of the earth. It can make a difference in a week's time, a month's time, a year's time. Far more than just being a javelin, a prayer is sort of like, well, air superiority. Don't go to war unless you've got fighters in the air above you who blow up the enemy. When we pray, we're calling down fire from heaven. We're calling for God to assume control of the heavens and to break the enemy. Prayer is so much more than just a javelin. And every Christian should be praying and praying and praying and praying. Because with prayer, we disrupt and break the enemy. With prayer, we disorder his plans. I was already prayed this morning. Seller this morning prayed uh, that, that the, the devil's plans, she rebuked the devil in her opening prayer this morning. We need to rebuke the devil and resist him in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the Lord's prayer, we pray, Lord, keep us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. That's rebuking the devil. That's asking the Lord to intervene, to claim the airspace, to give us artillery superiority, to rain down fire on the enemy, blast them to bits so we can advance and take the territory. Are there any questions this morning before I come to a conclusion? For those who are visiting with us, I'd like to stop and see if there are any questions. Anything I've said that's upset, confused, or you'd like to know more about? You're frowning at me, Gordon. Would you like to ask the question, or are you just going to frown? Just going to frown. All right. If you'd like to hear my hour-long lecture on the reforms of Marius, stay after church, and we can do that. Because the Roman army changed through the long centuries of the Republic and into the Empire. Sometimes people quote this passage about the armour of God. 
And they say, and we've got to go out there and beat those evil dogs in the Labour Party or the Liberal Party or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Or they start talking about taking control of the airways or reforming culture and doing all those sorts of things. We've got to go out and beat those lousy, no good people who don't agree with us. Sorry? The pagans. Yeah, let's go and beat up the pagans. But no, that's not what this passage is about. Paul starts by saying, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against who? Against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers in this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is not calling for Christian soldiers to march as to war against other human beings. He's calling for Christian soldiers to march as to war against the forces of darkness, against the devil. And so we need to be careful about how we think about these military metaphors. Our job is not to beat the person opposite us in a debate. It's not to outsmart them or outfox them. It's not our job is not to humiliate the person we're talking to and bring them to their knees. No, our job is to defeat the spiritual forces that surround our friends, our neighbours, our family members, those in the community. Those spiritual forces that feed dark thoughts into their minds or give them bad ideas. The person you're talking to when you're sharing the gospel is not your enemy. He is your brother, your sister, held captive by a dark and hostile force. And we put on the spiritual armor of God so we can beat the devil and his schemes and set our friends, our neighbors, our family members free. Liberate them. Rescue them. Deliver them. And so we need to pray. And we need to put on the armor of God. And the church needs to advance. We have sat on the defensive for too long huddled in our trenches and hoping for the best. and That's not where we are meant to be. The church is meant to be advancing and taking new ground and setting people free. We need to get used to our equipment. We need to train. We need to prepare. And we need to advance together with our shield of faith locked together in formation. We need to hurl our prayers of javelins of prayer at the last moment and we need to rush in with the word of God and poke just where it needs to be poked. There's a verse in the Old Testament. It appears twice. It says, now it was spring, the time when kings go forth to war. And I love military stuff and I love those bits of the Old Testament that tell about those things. And this verse has always stuck with me. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Well, friends, it's spring. It's time to go to war. Time to get your armor on. Time to sharpen 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 your shoes. No, sharpen your sword, clean your shoes, put on that belt of truth. Let's go and take some ground. We mix our metaphors sometimes in the New Testament. There's military and agricultural metaphors talking about how the good news is spread. So we talk sometimes about military stuff and sometimes about planting stuff. And spring is when kings go to war and it's also when people plant seeds. 
And then in summer, the armies march and maneuver and the people care for their crops and tend to what they've planted. And in the autumn, it's time for harvest and time for the final battles. Time to bring the enemy to battle before the winter comes and it gets too cold and too wet. Well, this year we have a similar time scale. We're going to spend this spring term, term four, training and practicing and planting seeds, talking about how we use the weapons that God has given us. And then in the summer, we will campaign and we will tend our crops in preparation for the harvest next year, in the autumn, in term two next year. We're going to run an alpha course here. In fact, I think we're going to run three alpha courses over the course of that term, probably on a Wednesday night, a Friday night, maybe a Tuesday morning, and I need to talk to those people about that. But that's what I'm planning to do. And so I'm giving you six months' notice. Who will you invite to our Alpha course next year? Who will you bring with you? Think of the toughest person you know, the person who's most opposed to Jesus. Put their name on a list and then put some other people down as well. Let's pray for those people. Let's plan to invite them. Let's spend six months raining so much fire on them from heaven that the devil will flee. These people will come to know Jesus. Six months' notice. Find someone to invite and bring along to our Alpha course. Start praying. Start training. Start practicing. Start planting seeds. Because we're marching to war. All right. I invite our worship group to come. We're going to sing our final song. I remind you who we are and what we're about. We want people to meet Jesus. Would you turn to someone next to you and say to them, I want, to meet, I want people to meet Jesus. Would you do that, please? I want people to meet Jesus. And so I'm going to grow to be like Jesus, yes? Because I'm going to share Jesus' message and I'm going to love the way that Jesus loves. Don't sit down. Who told you to sit down? You disobedient Methodists. Stand up. We're going to sing our final song this morning. And if you've got questions for me, you'd like to speak to me about what we've talked about this morning, grab me at the door, make a time. I've got some appointments free this week. Let's sing our final song. Thank you so much.